Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This is Walkins. Welcome with Bridget Fetessy. I'm Bridget Fetessy, and you are welcome. <laughs> You know the drill. Please subscribe, rate, comment, share, reach out, tell your friends, send smoke signals, whatever. We love your feedback and we want to hear from you. Our guest this week is Dr. Michael Shermer. He's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a presidential fellow at Chapman University, host of the Science Salon podcast, and for 18 years, a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He is the author of a number of New York Times bestselling books, including Why People Believe Weird Things, The Believing Brain, and The Moral Arc. His new book is Giving the Devil His Due, a full-throated defense of free speech, free thought, and heterodox thinking. Given the current rise in conspiracy theory thinking, particularly of late, I can't think of a better person to interview in this moment. All right, one, two, three, four, five. This is Michael Shermer. We're going to be Michael talking about bro. skeptic and the devil. <laughs> My favorite person, the devil. Is he your favorite person? <laughs> you know, the Catholic Church had a position, the Advocatus Diabli, the devil's advocate, which was a skeptic. Basically, they debunked claims of miracles mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, this is how you get sainthood. You have to have so many miracles per you know, person's lifetime or something to become a sainthood. So, of course, everybody and their brother says, oh, I healed somebody or the ble- <laughs> the bleeding statue and the weeping paintings and all that stuff. And the Catholic Church knows that a lot, most of these are fake. Well, they're all fake, but um, but they, th- <laughs> they, they think, well, just most of them are fake. Uh, so we need a debunker. Mm. And anything left over that the debunking committee cannot explain, then they go, well, that might be a miracle. Okay. So really, they're they're pretty much, you know, skeptics like me. I just go one step further. What's the next step? Um, well, it would just be acknowledging that we can't explain everything. Right. There's always going to be anomalous uh, phenomenon in any field. Um, and what do you do with anomalies? Nothing. You assign it to graduate students to figure out or you put it on the back burner until we have a better theory to explain it or whatever. So like the difference between me and ufologists is about 5%. That is, most of the serious ufologists, um, the people that, that people like Joe Rogan's had on his show, they agree that 90 to 95% of all the sightings are fully explained. Right. You know, it's Venus, it's the moon, it's a weather balloon, it's, it's the B-1 bomber, it's a flight of geese or whatever. And, but so, what, so we end up with this 5 to 10% that no one can explain. Come on, Shermer, can you explain it? No, I don't have it. Okay, I can't either. So therefore... <laughs> No, to them, therefore extraterrestrial. To me, therefore nothing. I just we just can't explain everything. Right. So it really comes down to what you do with anomalies. Okay. Uh, and in science, we don't. You don't have to construct a whole worldview around it. Uh huh. Because just weird shit happens to people all the time. Right. It's the law of large numbers. You got three hundred million Americans. Million and one odds are going to happen three hundred times a day. Just highly unusual events will happen if there's enough stuff going on in the background. And then, you know, this pops out. And, and so, of course, our attention pays to that. It focuses on the unusual, not the usual. Right. So, but what about this one thing here? Well, what about it? What about the sea of nothing over here of, you know, non-coincidences? You know, all the things that could have happened that didn't happen, I don't notice those. And this, and, and this way of life and thinking 
Is it terrifying to you? <laughs> terrifying? No, it's liberating because I don't have to, you know, exp- I don't have to feel the pressure of explaining everything for my, right. day, my day job. Okay, sure. I had to explain this, 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 pretty much every issue of Skeptic, something on this or shows like this. Uh, it's okay. Just acknowledge that we can't explain everything. Right. Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. See, these are, these are three words. Uh, in addition to, I love you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the three most important words. I don't know is also okay to say it should be okay for everybody in science. It's, you know, it's just basically a meme that you, you that you repeat all the time. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of science is solving problems, answering questions, but if there weren't unknowns, there'd be nothing to do. Right. So, you know, the idea like, we don't know what this is. So, okay, that's going to be your project. That'll be your dissertation and that'll be your research project. You'll get a grant for this, whatever. If you don't have that, then you're not doing science. So right. in a way it's, it's liberating because it gives you something to do. I, I think that it, for me or for a lot of people, it's this kind of search for meaning. <laughs> the the idea of, of finding the patterns and seeing the anomalies and seeing the things that maybe aren't even there. Where do you get the bit most meaning? Um, what do you think? Is, yeah. What is the point of this, Michael? <laughs> what is the point? We've gone straight to the most important question of all. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning <laughs> of life? Besides 42. If uh, you can't answer this, I'm done. Then, yeah, then, then you're going to go back to your Catholic roots. <laughs> it's just such a, I'm so fascinated with the question by in general. Well, I, I did address this in my previous book, uh, Heavens on Earth, about the search for the afterlife and immortality. Mm-hmm. I, I cover all the religious uh, theories about this, but the, but the main focus is on scientific attempts to achieve immortality. You know, there's this huge drive by Silicon Valley oh, billionaires yeah. to defeat death. Yep. And there are people, honestly, super smart people, smarter than you and I, who go, yep, any, if you can, like Ray Kurzweil, if you can make it to 2045, you will live forever. Right. Forever. I've read this. You know, not, not 200, but forever. It's this like, sounds like a nightmare it, to me, by the way. Living forever. I, I know. I mean, what? so you get to a thousand and you're barely started. <laughs> no, I don't want, I, I remember one of the books I read when I was in fifth grade was Tuck Everlasting. And it was about a family that was outside of the wheel of life. They drank some water and they lived forever. And then they, they kind of made it their business to make sure that that didn't happen to anyone else because they realized how horrible it was. Yeah. And that book has stuck with me That's right. <laughs> my yeah. entire life. Well, there is the issue. Well, but but the problem also exists for religion. So you die and your soul continues on in heaven or wherever. Forever, we're told. This is what religious people tell us. Okay, forever. What what is there to do there in heaven? I mean, play a harp. You know, and when I was I in was college, told, I, had, I, was, I had a college professor who said, are, did they have tennis courts there? Because <laughs> I got to have something to do. I got to have competition, some stress, some <laughs> challenges, or else I'm bored. Right. And so what we're told is, no, you get to live in eternal bliss with God and, you know, eternal love or whatever. It's like, that sounds really boring. <laughs> You know, and, and uh, so I quoted Christopher Hitchens, who said uh, the Christian heaven would be like celestial North Korea, where you have this dictator, <laughs> this all-knowing, all-powerful dictator who knows all your thoughts. Ugh, uh, I, don't, I don't want somebody to know my thoughts. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. So it does sound terrifying. So either way, whether it's a scientific version or it's a religious version, you know, at some point we just hit this wall of like, what does this actually mean forever? I mean, eternity, mm. you know, and so on. And what is there to do there? And and Julia Sweeney has a funny riff about this. Uh, when the Mormon boys come by her house here, not, not far from where you are here, actually, <laughs> uh, you know, in their little starch white shirts, they're, you know, to tell their little story, the Mormon 
religion. And so she invites them in and this is in her letting go of God monologue. Mm. And so they make the pitch about, uh, the, you know, the angel Moroni came down and, and, and told just Joseph Smith, the whole story of, you know, how the lost tribe of Israel came to America and he found the gold, tablets in his backyard and translated uh-huh. you know, the whole thing and uh and then uh so first of all she goes okay first, first of all you know you know don't start with this story even the scientologists know to start with a right. personality uh, test right. not a crazy story like this but then she says then then they said well you know heaven's going to be great because you become whole again like if you're blind you'll see again if you're deaf you'll hear again if you're handicapped you'll have your limb back or whatever and uh, she says well I had uterine cancer, so if I, you know, was you know, made whole again, would I get my uterus back? <laughs> Imagine these eighteen-year-old boys going, "Wait, what's the uterus again?" Yeah, <laughs> and so they go, "Yeah, you get your uterus back." And she goes, "I don't want it back." Yeah, and she says, "What if you had a nose job and you liked it? Do you have right. to get your old nose back?" So the moment you start thinking about these things, like what, what does that mean? You're physically resurrected in heaven. How old? Right. You know, and, and there, somebody has an answer to this, age 30, because that was the age Jesus was when he died and so on. But but why 30? That's my question about the people who say you can, if you can make it to 2045, you'll live forever. Well, I don't want to be an 80-year-old forever, whatever I'll be at 2045. Well, their, their, their answer to that is you'll be like the equivalent of a 30-year-old, physically strong, your memory's great, because you know, we're going to... In, you're going to ingest these these nanobots that repair your cells and keep you young. That this is their explanation for this. Okay. Look, we're not even re- remotely close to doing any of this <laughs> stuff. So don't don't worry. Like this is going to happen to you, and you're going to I'm face petrified. this problem. Yeah. I mean, it's really science fiction. It's fun to think about. Uh, but the moment you carry through these thought experiments, like, well, what happens if this and this and this? The whole thing becomes kind of absurd. Now, I'm not in the camp where death is a good thing because we have a terminus to the journey, and therefore it makes the years now more meaningful because I know it's going to end. I I don't really want it to end. I could go on for as long as it goes. I mean, I'm not going to be bored. Yeah. I won't be bored uh, either. And short of, you know, being severely depressed and suicidal or something like that, most people would like to live as long as they can. So there's this mean that people say, well, it's not natural to live, you know, like 500 years or 200 years. Okay. Let's say the average lifespan is 82 and and your birthday's tomorrow, and you're 82, and, and so we're going to come take you. Would you like another week? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take it. How about another month? How about another year? How about another decade? Right. With the same health you have now. You're, you're strong and physically. Yes, yes, of course I would like that. All right. At one point, do you go, okay, that's it. I'm done. Right. Yeah, unless you're, you know, miserable and... Uh, you know, no one wants to live in, in as an invalid in bed with tubes. Okay, that's not living. Okay, I agree. There should be some terminus there, probably. Right. But you know, we're young and strong. Why not keep going? So uh, you know, that whole thing is it needs to be thought through a little more carefully. I think. I it's I I was laughing because I was talking to Jacob, my the Holocaust survivor I interviewed, but now we're buddies, and so we got lunch last or we had lunch last week and. We were talking about the Kobe Bryant thing and Vanessa Bryant's, well, how she said, and I think it was really more for everyone else than, and her own solace where she said, you know, that God knew that they needed each other and that's why he took that. And he was like, ah, ah, like he couldn't even hear it. You know, he was just like, ah, ah. 
And his wife was getting mad at him and saying, you know, no. I know. So, I mean, what do you say to that? I, I understand she's super grieving. Of course. I And, and this is, I used to be the kind of skeptic that would be kind of like, ah, isn't that just something you're saying to make yourself feel better? And somebody called me out on it. Uh, and they said, I'm not one to pull the raft out from somebody. If if that's what they need to get through this experience of humanity, then I'm not going to say God doesn't exist, or I'm not going to say that 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 idea is is ridiculous. Or yeah, neither do you have to affirm it though. So you know, there's a there's a balance in there. I, I agree. I'm with you. I'm not a super militant atheist. You know, just on the ba- you know just on the wagon all the. T- Well, there's a very, it's still very, the problem I have with, I went down the atheist road for a while until there was so much dogma and so it felt like a religion to me. There was just so many rules. It it really shouldn't be because it's, the word simply means without God. I just don't believe in God. That's it. Full stop. Right. But so are you not agnostic? Well, um, the way I phrase, I'm skeptic. I'm a religious skeptic. So I'm, I'm, I doubt that there's a God. But you don't uh, know. Uh, but but no one knows for sure. Right. So, the, you know, the, the, the terminology, strong atheist, I believe there is no God. Weak atheist, I do not believe there is a God. I know for certain there's no God. Yeah. So, it, so the, the claim, that would be strong atheism. Right. Okay. How do you know? That's my question. So that's, that's, that's really an untenable position. Now, you might phrase it in a scientific way, like, if God created the world, we would expect it to be a certain way because he's this omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent creature. And yet we have evil, for example, right. the Holocaust, why did this happen, and so on, disease, childhood leukemia, what's with that, and so on. So you might say, well, okay, that, that is, it's very improbable that there's a God because of these things over here, the problem of evil, for example. But that's different than saying, I know there's no God, all right, so... At some point, the absence of evidence becomes evidence of absence. Hard to say on the God question. So I just leave it at, uh, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a skeptic. I'm at, Agnostic is a word coined by Thomas Henry Huxley in 1869. He he just met—most people take it to mean today, like, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, like climate, like a climate thing. Like, I don't know. It could be this, could be that. I'm going to look at the data. What Huxley meant is it's not knowable. Right. Agnostic, not just without knowledge, but if I get more knowledge, I'll make up my mind. He really meant that it's not a testable um. hypothesis. There's no scientific experiment we're going to run and go, oh, look, yep, there is a God, or oh, no, there isn't a God. It's not in the same kind of empirical question that others are. So it's Interesting. agnostic. So ontologically, about the nature of reality, I'm agnostic. I don't know. Right. Behaviorally, the way I act in the world is uh, I assume there's no God. I'm an atheist. Because okay. Because otherwise I would act differently. I'd go to church or synagogue or whatever I would do. Right. <laughs> Instead of riding my bike Sunday mornings or whatever. Right. I'd, I'd be doing something else. And uh, so I, I think, you know, the labels, are they're just words. Right. But, you know, what do you actually do? How do you lead your life? So I'm not an atheist, like in terms of a worldview. I'm a humanist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an enlightenment humanist or scientific humanist or secular humanist, whatever, because humanism has a set of tenets, like we believe in, you know, universal human rights, uh, women's reproductive rights, freedom of speech, separation of church and state, freedom of thought, you know, and, and on and on and on, which are mostly kind of liberal values, but without the God part, right? <laughs> you know, just take just leave God out of it. So then you have to cut the just well. What's the justification for those rights? 
you know, and then you can get into legal theory and philosophy and that now we're off the page of religion. Right. And then we can have legitimate debates about which rights and what kind of rights and that sort of thing. But that's, that has nothing to do with atheism. That's, that's, so in other words, it's, it's better to you know, define yourself by what you do believe than by what you don't believe. This is exactly what I said on the Phetasy community. I said, um, I'm more interested because I've, I've been labeled a reactionary probably fairly just recently in the past year because I've been pushing back against some of the craziness I see on the left. <laughs> I am reacting to it. Yes. I, I am reacting to some of those things. So I guess technically that, that, that is a reactionary. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. I, I know that they mean it in a negative sense or the other one I get all the time is a grifter, which is just what people seem to throw around to it's anyone a, that a popular. I've seen that a few times in my feed. Yeah. Um, grifter. It's kind of a nasty term. I, I read your stuff. I don't, th to me, you're not reactionary, but then I agree with mo most of what you're saying about particularly the left, but to, you know, to kind of steel man their side, what are some of the arguments that they would make if they were sitting here going, no, no, you, you surely, Shermer, you just art articulated the liberal position about universal human rights. That's all we're asking for is universal human rights. So it really comes down to specific examples. The basic thing that they would argue is that I don't necessarily, the whole guilt by association idea, which is, I push back against it seems to come from the left, but they would argue that you are your politics. And so I get the because I'm very much in the middle and I don't know. I say this all the time. I don't know. I feel very conflicted about not my own morals. I'm probably more of a humanist than anything, but I, I do feel conflicted about the politic, the political, uh, everything that's going on politically, I'm not exactly sure where I fall in the spectrum because it mm. feels so like both sides keep going more and more extreme Yeah, and nobody really represents, represents me, but they would say, but I feel surrounded by people who are on both sides. I hear this and it's not even just a binary, but in terms of the lo loudest people, they are, very clear about how this is good versus evil. And they both feel that the other side is evil. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating to me is to see how some people, many people, see this as there's no moral conflict whatsoever. They don't feel conflicted about anything. They see the other, the other side as just perpetuators of evil or this battle for America or the soul of America and I just don't see it that way. Yeah. So I feel very, um, do, and you well, get battered a lot when you're you, in that you, space. What do, you, what do you call yourself? I, mean, so you're like, I'm, I'm I would just say I'm, I'm an independent. independent. Yeah. I, I, so there's a chapter in uh, Giving the Devil is Due in which I defend classical liberalism. Right. So I'm, I'm a liberal on most things, socially liberal. So pretty much uh, uh, most liberals would go, yeah, Shermer's liberal, boom, boom, you know, free, free speech, separation of church and state, women's rights, gun control, climate science is real, and so on. They go, yeah, he's liberal. Uh, but then I always, uh, I also think, you know, government is too big. Taxes are too high, you know. The healthcare system's all messed up. We need we need a lot of reform here and there. And th then, oh, but maybe he's a conservative. Okay, stop using the labels. Right? right. These labels are so 
so much baggage. I, so I've tried out classical liberalism because it sounds a, a, a little deeper and more thoughtful. And that's kind of the founding fathers. Yeah, but now uh, that's a right-wing dog whistle. Yeah, yeah I know. If I know, you so. identify as a classical liberal, it's essentially you're yeah. you're with Quil- the horrible person Claire from Quillette. Oh, you I know? like Claire from Quillette. No, I love her. <laughs> that's, that's totally sarcastic. I love Claire. Yeah, yeah. She's just been labeled this you know, person who's, who's, um, her, an evil person. And you mentioned this in your book too. There was one line that I really love that stuck out where you said evil is an adjective, not a noun. I love that. I will, that will, I will carry that forever because (laughs) I should have a (laughs) t-shirt. You should, because it's so, it just was one of those things that I read and I had to just stop and, I looked over at my friend and I was like, God, he's so brilliant. <laughs> I just love the way your brain works. But it's something that it just, we often do. And you even said it earlier, kind of this idea of evil when you're saying, when you were talking about right. like, oh, there's right. the evil things that are done. But is there this, and so much of it I was thinking about in your, in that chapter specifically, so much of the good versus evil narrative or idea is perpetuated by even star Wars, you know, this idea that it's this force outside. That's right. Yeah. Like it exists separate from human beings, right? Which it doesn't. I mean, if if you're alone on an Island, there's no morality there. There's no good or evil. You're just trying to survive and nature's just doing its thing. Well, the story itself though, star Wars, I mean, you know, that's kind of a mannequin black and white, good and evil. That seems to be a popular theme in literature and films for thousands of years. Yeah, that's that film. book right there, the Joseph Campbell. Yes, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Yes, I went through my Joseph Campbell stage in the eighties when he, you know, he explained what Star Wars really meant. I'm right. Like, oh wow. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, you know. And then I kind of revisited all that with the rise of Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. You know, the importance of myths and stories and archetypes. So I, you know, I, I acknowledge that, but. Uh, but that's separate from, but is it really real? I mean, right. in a scientific sense. So, you know, when Jordan talks about, uh, you know, if, he's, if you ask him, like, did, did, was, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was he really resurrected? You know, this is a central tenet to Christianity. As it said, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you shouldn't be a Christian. You should be a Jew or whatever. So, uh, but, you know, the choice, well, I, you know, life is suffering. There's a lot of agony and pain and misery. We all have to bear our own cross. Mm-hmm. And then forgiveness, starting over, the whole, you know, born again. Mm-hmm. You know, that metaphorically, it, it's like the, I can I can see the truth in that sort of metaphorically or in right. terms of like motivating people to get their lives together. A lot of people need that. Right. Okay. So I... But then if you go back, yeah, but do you think there was a guy named Jesus and he was crucified and he rose from the dead? You know, like hundred billion people have lived and died before us. Not one has come back from the dead. This would be an extraordinary claim. Right. How extraordinary is the evidence in support of that extraordinary claim? It's not even ordinary. It's not very good at all. <laughs> so I don't believe it. And and, and, and forget me, because I'm an atheist. Jews don't accept it. And they believe in the same God that you believe in. Right. And they don't accept it. Why not? And if your arguments are so good for the resurrection of Jesus, how come Jews don't believe it? Right. <laughs> you know, so, but that's a different you know question from like the one Jordaner. Joseph Campbell would, would ask. Right. Uh, so those kinds of stories, you know, they make a difference in people's lives. But for, for, for me, you know, from a scientist skeptic's perspective, we also want to know, but is it true, true, you know, empirically true, really true? You know, some, you know, the name Yeshua was not that uncommon at, at that time. Right. So there's probably somebody by that name. 
the Romans crucified everybody. Common right. thieves, they just did it for, you know, big fun Sunday afternoon. Let's go crucify some people, right? Yeah. So, so he was probably crucified. But you don't need extraordinary evidence for those because that's kind of an ordinary event at that time. There was a really great, I can't remember who did it. I feel like it was Tom Brokaw or somebody. And they did a whole series on how at the time of Jesus, that it was ripe for the idea of somebody to be Jesus. There were so there was just that at that time the idea was in the air. I, I think that's right, and uh, I've I've taken all of Bart Ehrman's courses on the Great Courses series, um, and he he's really good on the history of the Old Testament, the New mm. Testament, who wrote the Bible, the meaning of Jesus. How okay. his his book is called How Jesus Became God. I should take those courses. Oh, they're really great. Now, when you're you live in LA, driving around here, you know, you might as well listen to these. Yeah, things. It's, it's really good. And uh, in fact, uh, the Great Courses Plus, they're now an advertiser on my podcast. Oh, and this is an app on the phone, and you can so it's like a subscription service, and you can take all of their courses. Oh, wow! And you can listen to individual lectures and skip around, whatever. Anyway, this is the amazing thing about technology. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I mean, I love the master classes too. Yes, the master classes are great. They're so cool. So when I drive down my one day a week and I'm in the car for six hours for the whole day, it's like I, I actually could just listen to half a book or wow. take, you know, well, so six hours would be 12 30 minute lectures from a great course. That's a useful part of your time. Yeah, it is, and definitely. So, <laughs> anyway, so, but, but Bart has a, a sequence about how in Roman times it was very common for gods to come to earth you know, have sex and, and, you know, do right, power right. and throw lightning, but whatever. I mean, they interacted with humans. They were very human-esque. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was always sex, you know. God, always. God, so, much you know so much drama. I loved the Greek myths. And then there was a whole, you know, mythology about humans becoming gods or partial gods or small gods or whatever. So it was pretty common. And, and, and so the whole thing of, you know, Mary's impregnated by God, you know, that was not that. This was not some crazy story she hatched because she was fooling around on Joseph, that this was actually pretty common in the Roman times. Like right. So, so he, he kind of walks you through about, you know, after his death, you know, how this mythology rose around him. Like, oh, so he's one of those that was human. They became God. Not that crazy. Anyway, super it's interesting. so cool. I love, I just love all of it. I feel like there's, the reason that I would want to live forever is so I could read everything and learn <laughs> every language and, be, you know, one of my big dreams of my life that I'll probably never attain would be to read Crime and Punishment in Russian. Uh, oh, boy. I know. So I'd have to learn Russian first. I feel like technology might solve this problem for me, though, eventually, if I live just long plug enough. Just it, plug it right into your brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and have it just translate. Skip, skip the senses. Yes. So well, what made you write the, your newest book? So it's the, just a selection of essays, yeah, correct? Yeah, I, I put it together because uh, the very thing you, you were just saying, um, uh, uh, the concern about my fellow liberals and classical liberals, whatever, about uh, the defense of free speech. Right. Uh, people forget this. It, it was liberals who were defensive I know. of the First Amendment all the way up until the last maybe 20 years or so. Even soon... It's crazy to me because I'm 41 and I remember when that was our thing. Right. And I don't know how the 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 right wing has managed to co. Now, if you even say I'm a free speech and I think I'm with you on this, that I'm pretty much an absolutist. I just yeah. think that yeah. I want to know where people stand. And it's been I did. I had people writing in for 
I asked people to write to me about self-censorship. I was going to do a whole piece on it. I still want to. And I got 600 emails from people Whoa. telling me story. And I was in this corner in my office and it was so dark. I My cousin made me stop because I was going into such a dark place. And Whoa. you had a line in your book and it was all about what's happening. You know, because in the weird sense, we live in the best time ever. Right. It's the Stephen Pinker's book, the the better, what's the one, the angels? <laughs> Enlightenment Now is the new book. Enlightenment Now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people think it's the worst time ever. But on the other hand, you have one one paragraph I, I should try, I should have marked it. I underlined it, but it was all of the different ways that we're starting to self-censor. And well, it's basically leads, it all is around self-censorship and how... Um, the trigger warnings and the microaggressions and all of these things are yeah. basically one of my friends from from Eastern Europe said this is basically what happens to people when they're living in communism as right. they start siloing their personalities and their right. public and private beliefs. Yeah, that's the danger. Even if it, it's not official state policy to censor speech, people self-censor out of fear of social ostracization and, and punishment. And this is how, you know, pogroms and genocides happen ultimately is where a minority of the people uh, can take over an entire population like like the Nazis never won a majority. And new evidence shows probably they, the most Germans did not accept Nazi wow. ideology. And I would go so far as to agree with the line, no Hitler, no Holocaust. Wow. Really, most Germans, although anti-Semitism was fairly common, but it was common throughout all of all Europe, of Europe. Yeah. America as well. Most Germans did not think the Jews should be you know, expelled from the country, much less exterminated. That was right. really a Hitler thing. And he got the reins of power. So there's two phenomena. One is what's called pluralistic ignorance or the spiral of silence, where most people think everybody else believes X. They don't believe it. They think everybody else does. But in fact, most Is people this don't the idea it. of preference falsification? Uh, it's. I feel like I just heard a whole mm. um, podcast with Eric Weinstein, and it was another. I forget who the guest was, but they were talking about this. The, and it's basically what you're describing: is you think everyone thinks something, except it's a false preference. Oh, okay. Well, maybe that's a, an economist term for it, but the social psychologists call this a pluralistic ignorance. Interesting. So, for example, like the classic experiments on this, if you ask college students about binge drinking, most of them will say, well, I don't, I don't really like it. I, I don't want to do it. But, you know, everybody else is really into it, so I kind of go along. Right. But, but if you just showed them the data, actually, most people don't want to do it. Right. You know? So um, so pluralistic ignorance, uh, and then coupled to that, censorship or punishment of dissenters. So in authoritarian autocrats and theocracies, they silence dissent. Right. Uh, either, either, you know, officially, legally, or, you know, just even just putting people in prison, which is what happened in the 1930s. You know, the silencing of the German press, they just, you know, shut down newspapers and so on until mm -hmm. there were almost none left that were not state sponsored. So even though most Germans did not go along with it, uh, they had no means of knowing that most other people also didn't go along with it. Mm -hmm. So the emperor's, you know, new clothes, the, the little boy says, you know, he's butt naked. There was nobody to do that. And anybody who did dare to st stay up and say that was locked up, sent to Dachau initially and then other camps. So therefore that people can look around and go, well, I'm keeping my mouth shut because I don't want to, you know, go to the gulag. Same thing in Soviet uh, uh, Russia. 
you know, most people were, you know, did not go along with Stalin's crazy plans, but what, what are you going to do? Right. You know, so even the Allied mass bombings of cities, which we implemented in about mid-1944, against our previous policy, well, this is immoral to kill civilians. This is not what, you know, British and Americans do. But we did it in the hopes that they would rise up and overthrow the Nazi regime and end the war earlier. How are people going to do that? Right. I mean, it's next to impossible. Right. It's like, why don't the North Koreans rise up and over? They can't. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll be killed. Right. And it, it, so it's hard to get enough momentum to overthrow that kind of power structure. So that's how it happens. Wow. So the, the anyway, back to the, what the point of the book was in, in part, if we go down the road of censorship based in seemingly good uh, policy, like, well, we're against hate speech. Yeah, I, I, I don't like hate speech either. But what do you mean by that? I know. <laughs> now, if you, so just pick the low-hanging fruit. If you say, well, the N-word, we shouldn't use the N-word. Okay, I'm not going to use the N-word. But I don't know if we need a law about that. Because right. once you start down that path, it's like, well, maybe not just the N-word. What about the, you know, the C-word for women? And what right. about this for Mexicans and this for Jews and this word for that? Pretty soon, who's going to decide what kind of speech we're allowed to use? A committee? You know, uh, you know, the thought police or whatever. And pretty soon you're in East Germany with the Stasi. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, which we now know after the Cold War, about 25% of the entire population was working for the Stasi or either formally or informally by uh, turning in their neighbors and so on. That's a quarter of the entire economy is devoted to just spying on each other. Ugh. So I see this on next door. You know that app? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh! It's they—they they don't need. They have citizens spying on each other now. It's not even. Yeah, yeah. So I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried about this, and this is—you know—this is what the left used to fight against. Right. You know the ACLU. Re- remember they—they they defended the Nazis, neo Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois. Wow. You know, talk about defending hate speech. Right. Right. So I have a chapter in, in "Giving the Devil's Due" on David Irving, yep. who I've debunked. And, you know, Irving, but but I, I came to his defense yes. in his trial. I wrote a letter to the judge saying, you know, you should not lock him up, let him out. Even though he's, a, I think he's crazy. I think he's an anti-Semite. I think he's, you know, completely wrong about his theory of the Holocaust, whatever that is. Uh, but still, he gets arrested at the airport in Vienna to, to go there to give a speech. So he, he didn't even give the speech. Right. He was thinking about giving a speech. So that's a thought crime. Right. For which you could be arrested if it's the wrong thought. Okay, so let's say, yeah, but those Holocaust scenarios, they're really bad, so we're going to make an exception and say they could be censored. Okay. So what about the people who don't believe that there are 25 billion genders? Yeah, right. Are they deniers? Yeah. Are we, are, is someone like myself who questions this? Right. So is you're that? A, you're a denier. So <laughs> you, you should be locked up. Or, you know, another example is, you know, under debate is how many Native Americans there were in North America when Europeans first came here, how many were left by, say, 1900. You know, it's something on the range of like 30 million to 90 million. Okay. okay. So, and there's not a lot of, there's a lot of debate among scholars. Now they're kind of leaning toward the higher end. But let's say, I have, you know, I come in, I go, look, I think it was 10 million tops. Am I now a Holocaust denier? Right, right. Come on, we have to have open debate about these things. It's the only way to find out what's actually true. So the deeper underlying theme of giving the devil his due is our devils are whoever disagrees with us, and we need to give them their due because we could be wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And the fact is we know from cognitive psychology and social psychology and history, most of us are wrong about most things. Right. <laughs> and so we kind of stumble along and we think we're right, whatever. And then it's like, well, I guess I was wrong about that. And we quietly change our mind and so on. So the only way to find out is if you've gone off the rails is to talk to other people, mm-hmm. people that know something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And what's, so, what's disconcerting, Andrea, what's disconcerting to me is the other thing that's being messed with is the idea of truth or real, real, real. So uh, along with the erosion of free speech is the corruption of language. There seems to be a push of just words have no meaning anymore. Right. Or or they mean whatever that Pearson wants to make them mean. So how do you even, how do you get outside of this seemingly <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a quandary well you do it um well through this is what science is all about so the techniques methods of science have developed over the last couple of centuries to deal with this problem how do you go from internal subjective truths to external objective truths again truth with a small t in science mm-hmm. and the answer is well you test hypotheses and you try to falsify them So in philosophy of science, this has to do with the line of demarcation between science and pseudoscience or truth and falsity or whatever. And Karl Popper's whole theory about falsification was that you can't prove a theory is true. Hume called this the problem of inductions. I can say I have 10,000 examples of white swans. Okay, so I have proven that all swans are white. Mm -hmm. No, you haven't because... One black swan from Australia, you know, falsifies your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So the point of science is not to prove theories. You can't because it's to try to disprove them. And if you can't disprove it, then your confidence goes up that it's true with a small t. But it's never proven. Okay. So um, the difference between science and pseudoscience is, is it, or metaphysics or philosophy or whatever, is it testable? Is there some way we can get at it and see if it's really true. So, for example, if I say meditation works, (laughs) okay, well, it doesn't for me, but I know people that say it works for them. My question would be, what does works mean? What does works mean? Right. So if somebody says, well, I don't mean anything other than I I feel better when I do it. Okay, that's an internal subjective truth. Mm -hmm. No different than if I say, I like dark chocolate, and you say, I like milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. Or I say, Stairway to Heaven is the greatest rock song of all time, and you go, no, no, Free Bird was way better than, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) we're never going to, there's no experiment we're going to run and go, well, see, this one is the better. Okay, but on the works thing, if I go, you know, meditation works for me, and of course, what you want to know is, but but would it work for me? So then we have to run some studies and go, okay, what do we mean by work? Okay, it lowers br- blood pressure. It lowers number of stress hormones that pump through your body. Your blood pressure goes down. Uh, your, your reporting, your, your pain levels have gone from eight to two. You know, whatever. There's some way of objectifying an internal state. So this is like my friend Deepak Chopra. This is what he's trying to do. He's a big, you know, Western Buddhist meditator right. guy. And, and and he wants to say, I don't mean it just works for me, and maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't. He says, I want to say it really works, like medically, we can right. measure the effects, and so if everybody meditated, life would be better in this objective, quantifiable way. So that's the point of science, is somehow shifting from that internal subjective state to something you can look at, I can look at, and so on. This was always the hardest thing when I was at Playboy, I would write pieces and it would be some new study that came out and almost every study around sex and sexuality is self-reporting. Right. Every single one. 
Because how are you going to, you know, oh, who lasts longer? So they would have people, um, how long does the average man last in bed? They they would have men start a timer when they started. Well, when is start? Right. You know, what is what is that moment? Is the moment of is it the moment you're erect or is it the moment of penetrate? And when is end? If it, it was like I'll, even the ones where they tried to be scientific about it, it's still. And then who a lot of it is you're going to have to get people to say you allow you say, OK, you can record us. Well, even that's a certain population that would allow that. Right. So it's just all of those studies are just so bananas to me because around sexuality, it just gets so crazy. Yeah. You're like none of the, none of this is really true, true. It's all just kind of, well, here's what we can garner from some self-reported studies. Right. So what you've identified there is what's called the operational definition problem. That is when you say we're measuring X, how are you defining that? Mm. So, you know, Skinner famously made these little boxes, so-called Skinner boxes. Mm -hmm. You put a rat in there and the rat presses the bar. Okay. And when the bar is pressed, it closes an electrical circuit and it, in the counter counts it as one hit. And maybe the little pellet of food comes down or whatever. That is an operational definition of, uh, of a reward. Say if the rat presses the bar more times when you give him the pellet versus not, then that by definition, the operational definition of a reward, if that increases, well, w- w- what increases? The number of bar presses that we counted on the measure. Okay. That's kind of a simple example. In, in, in other other cases, like with sex, yes, you would have to, sex researchers, you know, they do this. They go, okay, we're going we're gonna to start it at the moment of penetration till the end. That's how we're defining lasting or whatever. Right. Uh, and, 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 but you'd have to be consistent with that through all the subjects and you'd right. have to have more than six. Right. Or something like 600 or 6,000. I don't know where you're going to get this data. Right. Uh, uh, but there, you know, sex researchers try to do that operationally define it very carefully. It's so hard though. I love the, what was the other essay that I love that was touching on a lot of what we're talking about, the what went wrong? Yeah, uh, on college campuses. Again, yeah. This is, you know, I'm, uh, I've been in the academy since the early 1980s, and it was always liberals defending free speech and so on. So what went wrong? Well, I, I think there's several things. The, the whole uh, rise of trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions surrounding that whole very liberal and understandable tradition of defending the uh, minorities, defending the little guy, you know, people that need a, a hand up, uh, that we need to protect. Uh, uh, the people that can't defend themselves, like the mentally handicapped mm. and, and children, and so on. All that is kind of part of normal moral progress. But then, you know, they just go too far and go, okay, we have to protect people. Hang on. You know, maybe people are more resilient right. when they hear criticism, when they're pushed. And then that doesn't mean you got to run around calling everybody the N word or whatever. <laughs> so let's not, you know, fall right to that, you know, right. that, that low hanging thing there. But just that. You know, like hiding from Ben Shapiro on your college yeah. campus. I mean, so like I actually have my students at Chapman, you know, most of them are, are pro-life, uh, pro-choice on the abortion issue when that comes up. I go, okay, can you defend the pro-life position? Articulate it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them can't because right. they've never heard it. I go, okay, go watch a Ben Shapiro video, mainly because he's entertaining. And then they come back and they're like, I'm kind of squishy on abortion <laughs> yeah. suddenly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? But even if even if you go, you know, no, I'm still pro-choice right down the barrel, but now I understand what those guys are arguing over here. You know, and, and so, uh, again, if, if uh, John Stuart Mills, uh, you know, he who knows his own, only his own position doesn't even know that. 
you got to know what the other side is arguing. Yeah. Even if you don't change your mind, even if you don't modify your own position, at least you've strengthened uh, the power of your own defense of your position. Yeah. Because you now know what the criticisms of it are. Back to Popper, if you can't try to falsify it, you're not really doing uh, objective knowledge, reliable knowledge. You're just subjectively in your head and you can't, you got to get out of your head. But isn't this also part of the whole, uh, what was I reading that the humans prefer being uh, right more than anything. So it's like the brain responds favorably to being, to proving itself. That, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so right. how do you, that the whole idea of confirmation bias, but also, and I say this always when, when Trump won, I said to my friends, I said, you guys have to be careful that you aren't going to be rooting for really bad things to happen so that you can be right. Like sometimes I get the feeling that you would be excited if he actually turned yeah. into Hitler yeah, yeah. instead of realizing maybe he has some problems, but he's not literally Hitler. He's not orange Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Bill Maher had, had that riff for a while about, I hope the economy takes a nosedive. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah, why do you want yeah. that's a, that? Well, is... That's why. Cause it's a tribal thing. Yeah. So this is Hugo Mercier's uh, previous book on, uh, on what the purpose of reason is. And, and it isn't to detect truth. It's really tribal loyalty to signal uh, to my fellow tribe, you can count on me because I'm defending our flag, our whatever our, our position Our belief. Is. Yeah, our belief. So everybody does this, so it's hard to get out of it. You know, so again, how do you falsify your beliefs? Well, you should read op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal if you're a liberal. You should read the New York Times if you're a conservative. You got to know what the other side is arguing because they may have good arguments and you might be wrong. And that's the only way to find out. But because our tendency is just to support, you know, this. so I mean, what do people really know about NAFTA and, and the whole trade agreement? Nothing, <laughs> but they're against it or for it because my tribe is. Right. I heard Hannity just the other night ranting about this, so right. I'm against it too. So, do you actually know what the theory of evolution is or do you know what climate science is actually saying? Yeah. You know, of course, most people don't. Most of us don't. And, um, no, most of us don't know anything. So we have to say, but but when when we comment publicly about it, we're not actually commenting about some scientific position we've determined. We're signaling to our fellow group members, look, like I'm totally skeptical of that global warming bullshit. It's a liberal conspiracy. You don't know anything about it. You're just signaling to the people that follow you. Okay, he's really a good team member, right? But how? So moving, you know, as as we were talking about earlier, I have questions from my. Um, readers and I wrote some questions, but how do we, what can people like you, I mean, what are you doing to combat this in society, these trends that you're observing other than writing a brilliant book or four? And well, I, I, I think what all of us, I'm not doing anything special other than what other people do, just stand up against it and just say, you know what, that's not right. Uh, and, and it helps to be a member of that particular tribe. So if you can say, look, I'm liberal, I'm liberal like you. I just think we've gone down the wrong path here, uh, that we should, you know, c c cut back on this whole censorship thing, hate speech business. And, you know, it's, it's not working. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and if more, enough liberals say that, you know, it's one thing for conservatives to say it, although, the fact that it's conservatives defending free speech should be worrisome to liberals. Again, I I want liberals to own the First Amendment like conservatives own the Second Amendment. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. We we have drawn the line. We are defending this no matter what. 
that's a liberal position. So right. I'm, I try to do that in every way I can. You do, and others. It's just all we can do. But I found that this is why I get called a reactionary or a grifter or what have you by the left is that, you know, I hear the like, kids in cages and all of these these things where they're like, this just isn't a position. You know, basically, you don't... I, I feel I've been more booted out of the left than I actually left. I just don't feel like there's a space for me because it's from the from the loudest people. It seems that there's the party has gone so far to the left that if you even push back at all. Yeah. See, liberals, basically, should, liberals should be doing some self-reflecting. If they lose you as a as fellow supporter of liberal traditions and values, then what are they doing? My recent guest, Jacob is he said he's a life like since he came to America he's a he's voted for eight presidents he's a life long democrat and he said he didn't know if he was going to die a democrat wow and i said if you're losing right. people like me a right. lifetime democrat my dad who is a he would never vote for trump but he wouldn't vote for bernie and he's a <laughs> right, he's a right. jfk liberal you know he's a right. his whole life a democrat my whole and he wouldn't he wouldn't vote for that. He's like, that's crazy. I'm not right. doing that. Yeah, maybe we should distinguish between the left and liberalism. Right. You know, it's the left that's gone down this this pathway, so, I think. So my question was, one question I has had was, what conspiracy theory, this is my question, <laughs> what conspiracy theory have you come closest to buying into? Well, that's a good one, yeah, because uh, a lot of people think since they debunk a lot of conspiracy theories, I don't think there's any. Mm -hmm. There's lots. Mm -hmm. There's tons of them. I mean, just the WikiLeaks thing alone, and before that, the Pentagon Papers. Wait, our government was doing what? That's a conspiracy. You know, you know, through, through cell phones or in the right. Pentagon Papers, they lied and lied and lied about the Vietnam War. Not just Nixon, but you know, Johnson, Kennedy, Eisenhower, all the way back. And, you know, World War One was launched by a conspiracy of these Serbian nationalists. You know, Watergate's a conspiracy. Assassination of Lincoln's a conspiracy. Mm. You know, conspiracies are actually fairly rampant. And so I end up, I actually think that a kind of conspiratorial paranoia is a, it's probably a good thing because mm -hmm. they happen enough that we should default to skepticism when we hear things because, you know, this kind of stuff goes on and on. Now... Did Jeffrey, you know, the specifics matter. Did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself or was he murdered, right? So, um, you know, I had a little thing with Eric Weinstein on Twitter about this because he was going, come on, Shermer, come on. You know, you know, it was, you know, a conspiracy of some sort. And then when the stuff about the two cameras broke down, I thought, oh, man, you know, I think Eric might be right about this. You know, so I tweeted something about it. And then like the next day, somebody emailed me and said, well, I've worked in the New York City prison system it's and like, those cameras break down all the, all the time. time. And it's generally, I default to incompetence usually. Incompetence, right. Yeah. I, I, that's my, I, I love conspiracy theories. I love them. And I think on Joe, I was saying, you know, I, every, I know when I'm too far down an internet rabbit hole because I feel like every single one leads to 9-11 was an inside job. You know, like, you know, you've been on YouTube too long right, when you're right. like, uh-oh, right. why did those towers right. fall down? Tower 7, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, so that's a, actually a, a, a good example. Um, like, how would you falsify a particular conspiracy theory? That's to be some way to get at the question. You know, did, did Building 7 fall in an unusual way or not? I mean, let's look at the facts. Most of these things can be settled by facts. But uh, I thought one of Joe's best episodes was with Edward Snowden. Mm. I don't know if you saw that one. From a remote location in he Moscow. Was record- when I went into the green room, he was still talking to him. Oh, really? Oh, and I oh, was wow. so... I almost talk about imposter syndrome. I almost walked right out because he was he's he, interviewing Snowden and I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. And he got done and I was joking with him. I said, well, Joe, lucky for you. He's like, whoa, that was heavy. And I was like, lucky yeah. for you. You have an idiot who doesn't know anything on. <laughs> well, one of the best things about that was when Snowden said, because uh, J- Joe loves to talk about conspiracy theories. Okay, so what's really going on? He goes, well, I'll tell you what's really going on. There's no smoking man running the show. It's just right. a bunch of bureaucrats trying to keep their jobs. Right. And I was thinking about this the other day, uh, reading this book called The Bomb, mm. Fred Kaplan. And um, so he talks in there about this kind of bureaucratic momentum during the Cold War of a buildup of nuclear weapons. And the question was never, how many do we need for deterrence? You know, this whole mutual sure destruction deterrence policy developed from the Rand Corporation and game theory mm-hmm. about how to deter somebody from acting aggressively. It was all kind of theoretical. But it, no one ever figured out, well, how many nuclear weapons do we need for deterrence? So we know the Russians won't strike. And and they never asked that. Instead, they said, well, we got to keep making bombs because this is what we how we make money. <laughs> we work for this company. We make bombs. That's right. what we do. So the more bombs they had, that they just found more and more targets. They had over ten thousand targets wow. in, in the Soviet Union that they were going to nuke, and not just like one big bomb on Moscow. I think Moscow had like seven hundred nukes to, to target various places in Moscow. It's a wow. big city. But Kaplan talks about there was some Air Force base way north of the Arctic Circle in Soviet Union that was only open like two months a year because it's frozen otherwise. (laughs) And then we had like 60 nukes targeted for that. Why? Why the overkill? And the the answer was because no one ever asked how many do we need. They asked how many can we keep making? You got to find more and more targets because this is our job. Right. So this is what Snowden means. It's like there's no smoking cigarette smoking man going, okay, now we're going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. It was like, how can we keep our jobs, keep the money going? And so escalating the security, the need of a security state because of terrorist threats, you got to keep the threats going. Right. So we can keep our jobs and keep hiring more people and hire better equipment for surveillance and better satellites and blah, blah, blah. That's just kind of bureaucratic momentum. Right. Not a secret, not the Illuminati living in London controlling the world's economy. I love the Illuminati conspiracies. (laughs) All of them are super interesting. I know, they're just fascinating. The real conspiracies are actually kind of boring. You know, Robert McNamara lied about the number of people that were dying in the Vietnam War. You know, that that's not as sexy as mm. there's somebody that runs the world and, and ordered the assassination of President Kennedy or whatever. I was in Joshua Tree because I go quite frequently and it was during the weekend that they have the UFO, the, oh, U- yeah, yeah, yeah. the big UFO thing. And I could have talked to them all day, every day, everybody that was for the there for the conference, just all different types. Well, there's, there's it's such a, a spectrum. That's a, that's a special subject, I think, that touches on uh, the religious impulse. Mm. I call them a, aliens, uh, 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 deities for atheists, or UFOs or sky gods for skeptics. Right. In a way, it, it's it's a belief in a higher power of some kind that's up there that comes down here 
to rescue us or inform us or educate us. Why or... do they think we're going to be rescued? This always cracks me up that they think that the, and I would ask them, so they all seem to think that it was like this benevolent force. I'm like, why do you think they'd yeah, be, could, could friendly? be friendly? It's a cookbook. They came to <laughs> eat, us, eat us or something. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I think the interest in that, and also it's not entirely impossible because there probably are extraterrestrial intelligence somewhere in the cosmos. Just I mean, simply by the, the law probability, of probability, yeah. Yeah. So, but but that's a separate question from have they come here? So right. It's good to separate those. The evidence we have no evidence for either one. Okay. So, like in a Bayesian analysis of calculating probabilities and how. Uh, how confident we're going to be in, in the hypothesis, it has to be pretty low until we have some concrete evidence. But we can still then speculate, well, what are the probabilities of this given, you know, 100 billion stars in our galaxy, every one of them has a dozen planets and so on. You start doing the calculation, how many galaxies are, trillion galaxies in the universe. God, we can't be the only we ones. We can't be. I hope not. But That's terrifying. It's, it's a mostly empty space. Things are really far apart. Chances of them finding us here, and they kind of look like us. They're bipedal primates with some gnarly stuff on their forehead, and they speak English with an Indian accent. I mean, come on. This is Hollywood. This yeah. isn't what evolution would actually create. And, you know, much less the whole sexual probe thing. And, you know, in the middle of the night, I had an orgasm and, and the alien took my sperm. Okay. Yeah. Dude, you had a wet dream. Okay. It's a wet dream. <laughs> this is not aliens coming into your. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the more human the story becomes, the more skeptical I am. Yeah. And, uh, and again, so we have to, uh, as Hume said, proportion our uh, belief to the evidence. Or as Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The idea that aliens came here, that, that would be an extraordinary claim. How good is the evidence? You know, it's like, well, at three in the morning, you know, in Farmer Bob's field, I saw this. Okay, that's, we got to do better than that. Mm, it's not very science-y of me. I feel, I feel again, all over the spectrum on this and it's maybe just my, my nature is that I'm very skeptical, except I choose to believe in past lives because it's more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So in the absence of proof, until you can say there's absolutely no such thing as past lives, I'm just like, meh. So who do you think you were? I think I was probably like a starving person slave in thousands of years because i have an unnatural appreciation for food every time i eat it so my theory is that i was like a slave or starving for thousands of years and maybe i have and you know they say that you have go to places where i have had that experience of like i've been here before in places in the world where i've never been yeah I don't know how to explain that. Well, so deja vu experiences. Well, we think the cause of that is that um, there's only so many variations on a theme of what a town city looks like. And you have models in your memory, in your brain of what towns look like. And some of them are a closer match than others. Just like when you see somebody that looks kind of familiar and you look at them carefully, you're kind of studying their eyes and nose and cheeks and lips and so on to see if there's a match to somebody that you actually do know. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, it, so the deja vu experience is this sort of feeling like I've been here before. I've had that when I was. Well, uh, deja vu is more, this has happened before, right? It, or it could be something like this has happened, but that, okay. that would be no different. It's just a pattern in, in your memory of a sequence of events that seems to match. You know, it's hard, hard to say. Yeah. yeah. It's so, interesting. 
but 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 you're unusual because most people that believe in past lives they think you know I was Cleopatra or I was no know, I was definitely not Cleopatra ninety nine point nine nine percent of everybody who ever lived was living in you know mud huts in a horrible conditions horrible conditions and I that, think that's why I'm so grateful that's who, that's who you would be You'd I be think a nobody. this is the first life around where I've had any kind of medium amount of things yeah. <laughs> it's like and I have just a so weird... maybe that's a useful uh, fiction to hold uh, it's sort of like a, 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 a Joseph Campbell kind of myth yeah so that makes you appreciate all the, the goodies we have today oh my gosh it's just see it, it's it's, it's interesting because I just like to, I'm fascinated with history and I just think that there have been moments like when I was in Egypt where I felt so on a sense level that I had been there in so, such a strong way. But I guarantee I was, I was like a slave who died in one of the pyramids, you know, <laughs> like making the pyramids. Your bones were in one of yeah, those stones. I felt that way. I was That's like, scary. I died here like a lot of times. I think <laughs> I went around the wheel in Egypt for a long time. But that's, it's more just interesting to me. And because, and I guess that that's just. Maybe it's the writer in me, too. I'm like, well, ah, it's just a better story. <laughs> it is a good story. It's a fun story. But there, then there's the population asymmetry problem. There's seven and a half billion people alive today. About 100 billion people lived before us. So if reincarnation were true, where did all those souls go? You know, 100 billion have lived and died. So the souls are floating around. There's only seven and a half billion of us. So there's extras or some you of us just have... explained ghosts. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're just they're in your closet right there. There's three of them waiting to come out or waiting for you to expunge the soul that's in you and get a new one. I just like the mystery. You know, I don't I, I, I like that we don't. That has been my most powerful. I've always thought, you know, I don't know is just a powerful phrase. I don't. And I just enjoy the mystery and. One of the, I had this idea for a comic that I always wanted to do that I still want to do called Satan's ver Satan versus the aliens. And the aliens come and then they turn all the humans into cow, basically like cows. They start farming them. But then Satan's mad because his whole system down there is like the prison system and it, re it requires more and more people constantly coming in. And then there's this group of humans who are kind of the rebels and they're fighting back but most humans are just paralyzed with the knowledge that aliens and satan exist and satan brings his whole army and he's got all the bad people and god is really just like a trust fund baby he's not he's a big shot jesus is a trust fund baby but god is basically just like a big shot corporate dude who golfs all day and doesn't care you know he's like whatever i don't care about all those peons like we don't want them up here anyway that's why i made these standards so impossible to meet so this is a whole this is a idea. Great story. Have yeah, you, you've written this up. You should, I've started working on it. This it's, would be a good story. It was, like, well, if they made that series, The Good Place. You could do something like this. It the, would be you'd a call whole it the bad place. Yeah. <laughs> and Satan ends up being kind of the the savior in a weird way. He's the he's the likable character, and then he has he's got all these bad guys who you know they know they know right. armies, right. and so it becomes him against the aliens and. They work with the renegade humans, and um, yeah, I'm not. I always just wanted it to be a comic strip, you know, just like a you, you, you should, you could, a graphic novel. Yeah, something like that. That because I I'm always these all of these themes are fascinating to me, and I I'm very skeptical of pretty much everything. But then there's the part of me that loves the thinking, like, what if it's all true? <laughs> what if we're in a simulation? 
That would be yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah. All, all that's fun to think about. Um, what I try to teach my students and people through my writings is we should default to skepticism mm-hmm. because most of these ideas are not going to be true. No. And this is true even in science. I mean, most scientists, when they're spitballing hypotheses to explain this or that, most of these ideas are not going to pan out. So it's good and natural for scientists to go, well, that's nice, uh, but I'm skeptical until you prove otherwise. So the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. Otherwise, it's reasonable to be skeptical. I have a theory that you can predict all marriages, whether they will last or get divorced by the wedding pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah? By yeah. the facial expressions? or what? By the facial expressions and the body language and, and the the... Uh, you could probably test it now with the, they have well, all the like muscle. There's a, well, there is the, the guy in Seattle. I forget his name now. Who, who developed this theory in the '90s? Uh, he's a clinician. He does mar- marital counseling, and then he developed a theory about this that y- he could tell like within five minutes of a video of a couple interacting whether they were going to last. Or wow! Not. And it, it was based on facial expressions like eye rolls. Mm. So if the guy says something and the woman you know rolls her eyes, contempt. He, Contempt, mm-hmm. disrespect, you know, not honoring this person. You don't. So he goes, that's a sign they're not in love mm-hmm. and therefore they're not going to last. Wow. Because if you, you know, if you're rolling your eyes at your partner, that's eh, not a good sign. I feel like the marriage one you could pr- pr- test pretty easily nowadays. Well, I think that, I think that's, well, he does have a data set on that, but, uh, but, but that was before the facial recognition software. They could probably right. run those videos through one of those algorithms now and go, Yep, you're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> Look, if you guys want to save some marital counseling money and money, <laughs> just and, just, and just, half of your income. Yeah, just go to the lawyers now. I guess. Um, one of the other ones is how do what, going back to this idea of the ideas that you're you're talking about in your book. How do you disentangle progress from what has kind of co-opted this movement? Like you said, so much of what the progressive left pushes for is you know, it's that moral progress and it's good. Right. And now it seems like it's almost uh, turning a bit authoritarian. So how, and I'm not sure what mechanism is at play. That's, I mean, some people say it's Marxism or postmodernism or critical theory. All all of that is a factor, but the more general factor I think is, is taking that idea from the history of civil rights movement, for example, be more tolerant uh, and and then trying to squelch down factors that suppress people like separate drinking fountains. We shouldn't have that. You can't turn people away from your counter based on their skin color. You know, all the things in the in the 1964 Civil Rights Act that Johnson passed uh, in which, you know, we're kind of revisiting now. They want to throw more and more things into that basket of what counts as discrimination against people based on their skin color, gender, whatever. And now those categories are expanding. The problem is, is once you expand the list, then then pretty much almost anything anybody does could be considered a form of discrimination. Mm-hmm. So again, the, the, the use of language, we have to dis- distinguish between words and actual physical violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're different. <laughs> And not everything everybody says is the equivalent of the N-word because it always comes back down to that. So um, short of something like that, we have to just tolerate what other people say, you know. And even though – so I opened the book talking about Justice Holmes's yelling – here, let me read it uh, specifically. You know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Oh, yeah, with Hitch? 
Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's on the like the first page, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just just everybody buy this book. <laughs> Thanks. It's so good. Uh, yeah. So uh, so in in 1919, Sheck versus the United States, Oliver Wendell Holmes writes the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent is a question of proximity and degree. So the two phrases in there are, you know, yelling, shouting fire in a crowded theater and clear and present danger. Okay. Now, so you go, wow, what, what, what was this case about? It must've been hugely. No. So during the first world war, before America entered it, there were um, uh, protesters against the draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had the draft Mm -hmm. and the government, could basically uh, take over your body. This is what the draft is, involuntary servitude in, in a way, in, in that uh, you normally control your life and destiny, but we're taking that over and we're sending you over to that war. And if you die, well, too bad. So a group of uh, protesters said, that's the equivalent of slavery. And, and the 13th and 14th Amendment prohibits that of the Constitution. So they were printing leaflets and handing them out to young men who were going to register for the draft going, you shouldn't do it. This is a form of slavery. And that's the case that they got sued for. Uh. This is a group of, um, of, the, of socialists in Philadelphia just for handing out pamphlets Wow, saying, you know, we disagree with uh, the draft because it's a form of involuntary servitude. Well, I, I would have to agree with that, you know, and that was also a big protest uh, during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if that is a clear and present danger protesting the draft is a clear and present danger. The equivalent of yelling, shouting fire in a crowded theater. This is the problem because in a democracy, you have to be able to debate questions like that. And it is not incitement to violence and so on. Right. To his credit, Holmes later changed his mind. So I think I went too far on that one. Uh Yeah. So, but that's, we still hear, hear those phrases used today. Yep. So I opened the book with Hitch and he gave the famous speech. That's well worth watching on YouTube. Just go Christopher Hitchens, comma free speech. And you'll, you'll get this. And he, so he stands up at the podium. He goes, fire, fire, fire. And he goes, see, Nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're anyway, that's how that all started. And, and, and I think, um, you know, this idea that anything I deem belongs in that basket of hate speech is the equivalent of yelling fire and inciting mm. violence. The danger with that is that anything can anything. be called that, right? And who, and again, it goes, the question I ask is who determines that? Yeah. So if you say on Twitter, I, I don't think, uh, I think there's two genders, there's not 47 or whatever. And somebody says, that's hate speech. You, you hate LGBTQ community. You're against civil rights. And so, you know, and, and therefore, you right. I'm a be, gender essentialist or and, whatever and, that. And, and even if a liberal says, I'm not saying we should pass a law that censors you, but just the pushback, you're going to do more self-censor. Well, maybe you won't self-censor because <laughs> you're brave, but you know, most people go, you know what, at work, I'm keeping my mouth shut. Well, because they have to. They have and to. people ask me what to do, and I'm not going to advocate for them to lose their jobs. Right, exactly. I don't have children. I don't, I'm not in the same position. I think that everybody is in a different position, but this is how these things get out of hand because everybody thinks everybody else believes it. And I have 600 The when I started writing that essay, the left came after me, all of these, all of these left wing 
journalists started piling on and they're like, oh, another right wing piece about how I'm like, the people who are emailing me are liberals. They're telling me that they're self-censoring. They're not right wing people saying they're oppressed because there is that. It's so fascinating to me to watch the kind of party of personal responsibility and um, free markets. And then they get and it's true. I think conservatives are often unfairly the terms of service are often unfairly applied, but you know the rules and that's their platform. (laughs) So if you're a personal responsibility person, play play the game. I I don't necessarily agree with it, but you don't get to preach that and then be like, I'm being oppressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a victim. Like you're the same thing. You're doing the same thing. It's just with a different, a different kind of idea. It always cracks me up. My audience has questions for you. Are you willing to answer yeah, some? Yeah, yeah, um, did you ever answer my question? Is did you answer if there was a conspiracy theory that you came close? Well, to? I I said I I liked a lot of them. Uh, I mean, I, I believe in a lot of them. Um, uh, mainly the most recent ones with the, the WikiLeaks mm-hmm. about all the things that you know even Obama was doing, right? You know, cell phone monitoring, cell phones, and that sort of thing. You know, he was supposed to be you know the transparency president. It's like, and I really liked it. I think he's a super smart guy, well intentioned, and so on. But it shows you what happens when you get in power. So th- th- here's my here's my answer to your question. They take you in the back room and they go, okay, here's what's actually going on in the world. You go, oh, I can't pull the troops out. Of- no, no, no. You can't close Gitmo. Exactly. No, you're not closing Gitmo. Yeah. Because if you do this and this and this and this yeah. and this. And that. Well, I didn't know about all those things. Right. Yeah. Because we're doing this secretly. You know, Congress Congress doesn't know about a lot of the things right. that our military and, and the CIA is doing. In fact, mostly, most of the stuff CIA is doing, nobody knows other than the insiders there. That's a kind of conspiracy. Yeah. That, that's really the more. The deep state. That, that is, there is kind of a deep state. Yeah. Now, I don't think, you know, Trump and the deep state or and whatever, that's crazy. But, you know, there is something like a deep state that that's at work. Yeah. And then often I do think they are sometimes protecting us. <laughs> But I don't know because I don't really know what they're doing. Would you agree self-censorship is the goal of free speech opponents? How does a society afraid of speaking its mind differ from one in which free speech is not permitted? I don't think I don't think the people we're talking about have that as a goal. I don't think they're thinking we want to force people to self-censor by doing it. I think they are most of them are well-intended and like, That's where I, I I'm just trying to uh, I'm just trying to, you know, do, do a, the right thing here and help and, the marginalized. Sort of more, more of a, yeah. I think it's more of an unintended consequences of that, which is sort of the point of the book, is that these are your devils. You got to give them your due, and these are the ten reasons why. So I'm just kind of articulating arguments that most people, most liberals already know because they used to support this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the platform of the ACLU. Um, you know, that's kind of. I mean, they've always been very liberal. The ACLU. And, you know, now it's it's like the right's defending the ACLU. For right. Me. It's like, wait a minute. They used to hate the ACLU. I know. It's I reminded crazy. people on Twitter the other day because uh, I posted something that said, yeah, the right's always been in favor of free speech and the left's always been against it. It's like, no, no, no. Remember uh, the protests against um, pornography and prostitution and Madonna's yeah. vi- mu- music Rap. videos? Those yeah. were all conservatives against that, right? Flag burning. Other than Tipper be- Gore. She really didn't like rap music. <laughs> she, oh, that's right. She did. <laughs> Poor Tipper. <laughs> Maybe she'd like Eminem now. <laughs> yeah. Now that he's he's come yeah. around. Yeah. I know. It's so funny. That was all conservatives who were that's out right, right. pearl so, clutching. Th- that's right. Janet so, Jackson. Yeah. The whole. Nipplegate. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, it's been. It's a, it does feel a little bit like upside down world. 
Whoa. We have a very, we have a lot of thought provoking conversations going on. Science can explain what happened in the beginning, but it doesn't seem to be able to explain why it happened. How would you answer the why? Yeah. Um, so I have a chapter in Giving the Devil's Due mm-hmm. uh, called Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing, which is an ancient question. Uh, and so we don't have a, a, a full answer to this. I, I really have like 12 different ideas that, not my ideas, these are you know various physicists, cosmologists, philosophers sort of think it through. Part of the problem is in the language. Like if you say, well, time began at the Big Bang. Well, what was what time was it before time began? It's a meaningless question. Uh-huh. Hawking's analogy was it's like going to the North Pole and go, well, how do I go further north? Right. You can't go further north. You're at the north. You can only go south. So in in a way, it's like, you know, what was there before? What time was it before time? It's a meaningless question. Mm-hmm. Even the idea, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, what do you mean by nothing? Because mm-hmm. so if you say, well, okay, we take take away all the planets and stars and galaxies and particles, atoms and so on. There's still space and time. So you have to take that away. You have to you'd have to take out Platonic ideas, logic, mathematics. The idea of God, anything. There's no ideas. Right. So, so you have to remove all that. And at some point, there's nobody even contemplating the nothing. And there's not even the word nothing, no thing. There's not even a, a no thing to not exist. At some point, we, we don't even have the words. I don't even know. Right. What, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Right. At that point. Nobody, <laughs> nobody does. So you can't. So if I say envision, envision nothing, you can't do it because mm-hmm. you're envisioning something. Something. So there's an envisioner. This is right. The, this is the Cartesian argument. Descartes doubted everything until he got to the point where somebody's doing the doubting. Right. I can't doubt that. So and then he builds a philosophy from that. Well, I think. That's what Thomas Nagel called one thought too many. Right. It's like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. You, let's start, let's change the subject, basically. So we, we don't know. Something obviously happened. It could be, you know, multiple bubble universes, multiple big bangs, could be the multiverse. You know, there's a bunch of different theories. We don't know. Okay. I don't know. What made you choose to teach skepticism? Uh, well, I got hired at Chapman University as a, um, uh, a presidential fellow, and uh, and they basically said you can teach anything you want. Uh, we just want you to teach our students to think critically, uh, which is kind of what I do. So I thought, well, skepticism one hundred and one—that's kind of my magazine. That's my day job. So yep. I'll just teach my day job. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And my question, my follow-up question, is what what made you so curious? What made you so devoted to science? I guess that pursuit. Um, well, my first day in college was an astronomy course, Astronomy 101, and and I had no idea what to take in college. I didn't even really know anything about college other than, you know, you're supposed to go. Okay, so I went to a community college because it's free, uh-huh. and I just lucked out and got a really great professor who also taught philosophy and astronomy, Wow! and he was just so dynamic, and the reason I signed up for astronomy is because I was a big Star Trek fan, <laughs> so I thought, well, I like Star Space, so I guess astronomy <laughs> is the one, right? And uh, so that got me interested in science. At the time, I was religious. I was a born again Christian. I went to Pepperdine University. Oh, okay. In Malibu, which is where are you from? I'm from this area. Okay, LA, uh, the Pasadena area. So, so yeah. you went? Were you raised very no, religious? No, no, no. My parents weren't religious at all. No. Early seventies, the whole uh, evangelical born again movement really took off. Non denominational, just you know, me and Jesus. Wow. <laughs> and I really gonna, like Jesus. <laughs> gonna, yeah, he's a good guy, right? <laughs> we can just read the Bible, leave all the religious crap out of it. Let's just read the gospels yep. or whatever. Anyway, so I did that for seven years I, and I really got into the whole theology and free will and God's existence and all that, those arguments. But I, I kept gravitating toward science because it was something I could, I, I was better at. 
I wanted to go into theology, but at, at Pepperdine, I sort of talked to the professors, and they go, well, I, I want to be a college professor. It seems like a great job. So I got to get a PhD. To get a PhD in theology, you have to master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, and I can, bar- I can barely get through Spanish. Wow. You know, everybody takes Spanish here in Southern California, right? And I could barely get through that, so I thought, okay, I bet I'm never going to make it, so I better pick a field I'm good at. So I was better at statistics and research methodologies and psych- experimental psych, so I ended up going into that. But along the way, I then started applying that kind of skeptical methodology to the claims of the Bible. Uh, I thought, you know what? And then I also took courses in anthropology and social psychology. And I thought, boy, you know what? These people, that South American, Native American, you know, hunter-gatherers, they believe just like I do, just as strongly, I mean. And pretty much every other religious person I've talked to, they're as convinced as I am that they're right. How can we tell? If you're a Martian anthropologist and you come here, you go, okay, you claim you're right, you claim you're right, you claim, which one is right? Mm-hmm. Right. And there is no answer. So right. So, that, so that's when I kind of abandoned it. Um. And I, I didn't make a big deal about it. Uh, you know, my girlfriend had given me this uh, ichthus, this necklace. This was in the 70s when guys wore <laughs> gold chains. It was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> and I had the, the little Christian fish with the Greek letters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That's the ichthu fish. That's, so Christians always wore that so we could identify, you know, as a tribe, right? Yeah. We could identify. And uh, so I just took it off because I was, remember staring in the mirror one day going, in addition to thinking gold necklaces are kind of obnoxious on men. I thought, you know, I feel sort of hypocritical wearing that because I don't really believe this stuff anymore. Have you seen the Bill Burr um, stand-up routine about this? No. Oh, you have to watch okay. it. It's in his, uh, I'm sorry that you feel that way. It That's the, I'll send you a link, but he does a whole thing about how he left his religion and he never even mentions this one, but you can figure yeah, it out. Yeah. And he says the same thing. He's like, I didn't read anyone the riot act. I didn't, I didn't. And he does this act out of how he just walked away. It is so brilliant. Oh, I gotta see it's that. so good. But he talks about this. And I, I think probably my friends and family were glad that I gave it up because I was always witnessing to them. You know, as an evangelical, you're supposed to witness. What is it? I, I hear this all the time and yeah. I really don't know what it means. Well, literally going door to door or, or saying something to the person in line at the supermarket, you know, Jesus loves you or whatever. Uh, you know, you're supposed to plant that little seed and hope it, <laughs> it sprouts later and you're spreading the word, the gospel, literally right. the good word, the good news. And that's what, if you, if you don't do that, then by definition, you're not really an evan- evangelical. Interesting. Evangelicals evangelize, mm. and what they mean by that is you tell people all about the good news. The good news is you're saved if you accept Jesus. So that's why they, you always see the banners of John three sixteen mm-hmm. at football games and so on. That's the passage for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son that he you may have everlasting life and so on. That's all you got to do. If you read that passage and go, I accept Jesus as my Savior, you're in. Okay. Okay. So you you could be Jeffrey Dahmer and at the last minute on death row when they drop the microphone down and ask if you have any last minute things, you can go, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and you're, you're well, supposedly you're in. <laughs> that, um, that doesn't sound like cosmic justice to me. No, it doesn't. This, we'll, we'll wrap it up after this. What recommendations do you have for securing sufficient and credible data without investing in overabundance of time and research, or is the key to focusing on the logic of the argument? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> that's a, like a philosophy of science question. Well, you need both. So, um, you know, in terms of epistemology, you want an internally coherent 
uh, argument that corresponds to reality as we can measure it. So you need the arguments and some empirical data. Now, if you don't have time to do it, well, this is why we have experts. Right. Now, if the experts all disagree with one another, then it's good to withhold judgment and see how it plays out. But like in climate science, for example, I was pretty skeptical of a lot of it in the 90s because I grew up in the 70s and 80s with all the doomsayers. Right. You know, this is going to happen with peak oil, overpopulation. Oh, I heard it growing up too. Rainforest, yep. it's all gone. You know, by the 1990s, you know, doomsday is here. Well, you know, none of this happened. Okay, so Why? And anyway, so by the late 90s, I was thinking, you know, this might be a bunch of bullshit, you know, maybe yeah. I just don't know. You know, then in the 2000s, I started reading the papers and following articles and then following the experts and so on. And they kind of converged or consilience or a convergence of evidence from different lines of investigations to the conclusion that global warming is real and human cause. So I accepted that, not because I studied climate science to the point where I understood it, but that I know the competitive nature of science and scientists that they will try to debunk each other. And right. They, they do. Right. And so if they're all in, you know, sort of consilience or the convergence to that conclusion with, you know, pretty much 97% confidence, you know, that you hear that number, then, then I can be reasonably sure that's probably the case. And this would be true with like quantum physics and, you know, big bang cosmology, inflationary cosmology. I don't know anything about this. I'm a mm -hmm. social scientist. So I rely on my friends at Caltech. If I call Kip Thorne and go, Kip, what's the deal with this? I remember in the nineties, there was, there was some problem with the measurement of, there were some stars that were older than the universe. Well, well, how can that be? You can't right. know, the daughter can't be older than the mother. <laughs> right. Okay. He, and I said, Kip, is there something wrong with the Big Bang Theory? Maybe this whole thing is, he goes, no, 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 no. It's just measurement errors. And d don't worry about it. We're, we're finding it. We're working on it. Better measurements are going to come. And this is all going to work out. Sure enough, it, it, it did. So there you can, it, it, so it's not like an argument from authority. I'm just going to somebody who knows a lot about the subject, who himself has been in competition with other experts about, you know, what's, What's the truth about this or that? And so we rely on that. You have to because have most to. of us don't know about most sciences. Where I have a question that I've been asking everyone. Where where do you go for your reliable news? Where do you go for it? Yeah, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm the right person. I read the well, – I have the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal every day. Then I do the New York Times on the weekends. Um, and then, you know, I bounce around. So it's kind of fun to, to toggle between CNN and Fox. Because yeah, I do like, the same thing. It's like these are two different It's like living universes. in two Americas. <laughs> yeah, like, I say this all the time. I'm like, especially on Twitter, you really see it. I have this one list, sane people list, and it's it's really center, middle, and right. It's just all across the spectrum, and it's a list where if I scroll down, I can see what every person's take from every kind of tribe is pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain touch like flashpoint ex examples. Yeah. Um, Kavanaugh was one, the Covington kids. And it is 100% like living in two Americas at it's the same crazy. time. I know. Uh, so, well, I don't, you know, other than that, um, I, I try to bounce around between the, the polar extremes and then and find your find own the middle. way. I mean, last night, 60 minutes had on, uh, Bloomberg and, you know, he repeated the, the meme, you know, Trump said that the coronavirus is a, that the, is a, is a, a, a liberal hoax. And, and then to, to his credit, Scott Pelley, the journalist for 60 minutes said, no, you know, he didn't say that. He uh. said that the liberals were saying that the response I forget. I forget what it was now. That that Trump's that that 
the liberals were saying that the response to the coronavirus was inappropriate, and that's the hoax that their response to him or something. There was some convoluted thing, but it wasn't that he said the virus itself is a hoax. I mean, I think what I tell people is find journalists who have not abdicated their responsibility as journalists. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, that's right. so much of it is what I've kind of labeled journalism, where journalists are activists. They're activists posing as journalists. Yeah. And they've lost their own impartiality and put their own narrative. Their devotion is more to the narrative than it is to the yeah. truth. I think Snopes is pretty good on this. Uh, J- I think Jake Tapper is really good. In Jake term- Tapper, yeah, he, st- yeah. he stays pretty. Um, PolitiFact, you know, they fact check um, yep. politician speeches sometimes in real time. Mm-hmm. That That seems pretty reliable. It's hard, though. I know. It's getting increasingly more. This is This is what worries me. I I have I could talk to you for like seventeen hours. Now I know you'll have to come back because I know you have to go. So I don't want you to get stuck in traffic. But tell us where we can find you. Skeptic dot com mm-hmm. is the magazine and my webpage for for the society. And then Michaelshermer dot com is you know has all the personal stuff and my books and of course Amazon. You can get my my books there. Get them all pre order. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> supposed before April 9th is the pub date for giving the devil his due. Uh, Cambridge University Press. I'm kind of excited about this. It was uh, inspired in part by Richard Dawkins' last collection of essays, which uh-huh. I really loved. He read it, so I, I do the audi- audi- uh, audible uh, version of this book because I like listening to authors read their own books. I do too. And uh, so Hitch reads his own books, uh, and it's fun to hear him. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have a great voice; he's kind of a mumbler, and I I don't like my voice at all. But I like the author reading their own books. So yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Please uh, come back. Maybe we'll we'll run this one and we'll get you back in e- even closer I'll so think we can I'll, keep I'll, promoting it. I'll think more about conspiracy theories that I believe. Or want to believe. <laughs> or want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> we all have some that we want to believe. It's time for the weekly check-in with Bridget and Cousin Maggie. I'm checking in alone. Is there anyone alive out there because I'm in quarantine and I haven't quite figured out how to get the sound quality uh, to my liking doing interviews remotely so Maggie and I will work on that (laughs) I feel like I have asthma or something I have such shortness of breath how's everyone doing out there I keep thinking of those weird videos that were going around that were nobody was really sure if they were true or not. And it was during the Wuhan lockdown and there were all these videos of drones flying around and it would be people outside and then the drones would be talking to them and they'd say, we live in, ver- we- neighbor, these are unusual times. What are you doing? Obviously in Chinese. But I've been saying this for months. These are unusual times. What are you doing outside? And they are unusual times. And I think in unusual times, and particularly because we're just stuck with ourselves in our own minds for so much of the day, in particular, even if you have kids, even my friends who have kids, they might be a little more distracted and be juggling a lot a, a lot more moving parts within the house in terms of getting the kids to do schoolwork. And a lot of people have kids home from college who went off to college and uh, now they're, they've all returned home. So even still, there's just so much time to think and sit with yourself and 
be uncomfortable. And I've been wrestling with some kind of sickness. The doctors don't test you unless you go into the hospital. Although I think they lifted some of those restrictions. I'm still not going to go out in the world with the symptoms I have, which has been like a persistent fever. I had a dry cough, which seems to be going away. And a couple nights ago, really bad and terrifying shortness of breath. Um, and just anxiety provoking when you can't take a deep, draw that deep breath. So it sounds like the Rona. And I have a hard enough time staying sane when I'm not sick and then being bedridden and not really, I kind of, I went for a walk thinking I was feeling better and then I it just kicked my butt again, which has been the strangest thing of this, whatever sickness this is, I'll think I'm better and on the other side of it and I'll exert myself like just a little bit and then it it seems to come back with a vengeance. And I had an ear infection and so I've been going to lots of 12-step meetings all over the world or as a, a few meetings, I guess not lots. I should be probably going to more. I've been just lurking on Twitter and sometimes engaging, but mostly not. I've never felt more politically homeless and kind of disillusioned. And at the same time, I feel really inspired by what I see and so many people trying to help each other. But I think mostly... I'm trying very hard to just confront reality as it is presenting itself, which is the hardest thing to do. I want answers and clarity, and I I go down these rabbit holes of information looking for some kind of answer. And I think being in a 12-step program is really beneficial because it is truly one day at a time right now. And I have to remember that because... I'll start tripping out about all kinds of things uh, in the future or in the past, and <laughs> like things that I wish I had done. Like, why didn't I go to Israel? Why did you know going down these regrets of things that I just uh, feel like I'm being punished for my procrastination, and also can't seem to get out of my own way, and also have to understand that I'm sick, which I. I have a very hard time doing because I'll just beat myself up relentlessly all day long when left to my own devices if I'm not distracting myself, which is then why I end up just distracting myself with binge watching something. Um, I finally started reading a book and, you know, you just go into these these moments with such high expectations and then it's just a battle against my own mind and lack of discipline and productivity and mm, it's so uncomfortable, but also trying to be nice to myself and just say, yeah, I'm sick because I've also weirdly been in denial about that. And I try to really be in touch with reality, but in certain ways I'm like, no, it can't be, even though I have every symptom. <laughs> I just... Uh, I don't know. I'm rambling because I'm all alone. I'm all alone in the world. And it's hard because I haven't, I just, it's just been, my mind is loud on a good day. And 
I know that this is a good time for me to get quiet, but like I should probably be meditating like Buddha every day. <laughs> Maybe it's time to try and become enlightened or some shit because I might not come out of quarantine sane. I'm definitely not going to... I have learned a few things. I've been making bread, which seems to be the only like good thing that I've figured out how to do. Anyways, I would love to hear from you. I miss you all. We're cruising along in com, so if you want to join us there, that's been a nice oasis for me and everyone's so positive, and even if we have to rant, we rant, and everyone just like has been lifting each other up and suggesting television shows and videos, and it's so great. So join us there, com. If you want to join and you have um, some you know, if you're struggling with finances, as many people are, you can email me at walkinswelcomequestions at gmail.com and I'm happy to make arrangements with you. We just want you in there. So with that, I bid you all adieu and hope that you guys are hanging in there. This feels like (laughs) I'm like live from the bunker. All right, bye. Tune in next week for another riveting episode that will change your life help you get out of your own way, and solve all the world's problems. I want to thank our composer, Jared Elias, my co-producer and cousin, Maggie, and all of you out there listening. This has been Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Fettesy. I'm Bridget Fettesy, and you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's the dumbest line. (laughs) Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.